This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and this is the eighth of our eight-part AI Futures series on the future of the human experience. That means this is our grand finale here, and there's a lot to cover in this episode. As I mentioned before, the intention of this series is to create windows to help our listeners take a look at where AI might take us and what we might want to do to steer the future of this technology from a governance standpoint, from an adoption standpoint, from a regulatory standpoint, etc. We started the series with an excellent interview with none other than Stephen Wolfram himself, who teed up some of his future visions around how artificial intelligence in the blockchain might impact future consumer technologies, the way we govern ourselves, the way societies operate, very big picture. And for this final episode, we're pulling it to the big picture again with a thinker who I have long admired but never had an opportunity to interview until now. Some of you who are longtime listeners here to the show will remember that we had Wendell Wallach on the program. Wendell Wallach is one of my favorite technology ethics thinkers and someone who I have really enjoyed the acquaintance of over the last, I don't know if it's been eight years or so since we had our first conversation. Kind of crazy to think about how long it's been. And something like six or seven years ago, I gave a small presentation at Yale University where Wendell was running an ethics group. And the focus of the presentation was on artificial intelligence and brain-computer interface. And one of the guests in that small event was Dr. Susan Schneider. Susan got her Ph.D. in philosophy from Rutgers and then taught at UPenn and then at the University of Connecticut. When I met her, she was at UConn. And there she was also the founding director of the Group for AI, Mind, and Society, or AIMS. She held the Distinguished Scholar Chair at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. from January to June of 2019, and the NASA Chair in Astrobiology Exploration and Technical Innovation from October of 2019 forward. Today, Susan is a professor of philosophy at Florida Atlantic University, and she is the founding director for the Center for the Future Mind at FAU. This is one of the first times I've really been able to catch up with Susan since first meeting her at Yale those many years ago, and there's two really big reasons that I got a ton out of this episode, and I hope that you will as well. The first is that Susan is absolutely full of personality and enthusiasm. This is anything but a boring episode, and Susan makes these topics of artificial intelligence and brain-computer interface really sparkle with great examples and, again, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm the whole way through. Secondly, and probably one of the biggest reasons why I respect Susan's work uh, since following her ever since we met the first time, is she is not afraid to talk about the big game. Oftentimes, when we're discussing the future of artificial intelligence, folks are loath to think about where AI could go how AI might be able to overtake human intelligence in some ways, how brain-computer interface might have uh, dire consequences in terms of uh, negative impacts or just in terms of radically altering the human condition. This episode, after all, is about AI and the future of the human condition. And again, Susan is absolutely not afraid to talk about the big game, to talk about where things might take us in kind of a post-human trajectory if we look decades into the future. So this is not an episode where we're thinking just about the five-year future. This is an episode where the 20 and the 30-year futures really come to bear with AI and brain-computer interface. So again, one more window. This is our eighth of eight episodes, so our last little window into the future of the human experience in this special Saturday AI Futures series. It was great to have Susan as our final capping episode, and I hope you You'll all enjoy this one. So without further ado, let's fly right in. This is Dr. Susan Schneider here in our AI Futures series.
So, Susan, I am really glad that we're getting to catch up again. It has been literally far too long. Sometimes I say that after it's been two years of interviewing somebody. With you, it's been seven years since I saw you last. And so it's just a real, a real pleasure to be able to connect. And we're talking about something that's so your sweet spot that I needed to have you in this series. And that is where artificial intelligence, potentially the future of kind of uh, brain-computer interface even, will be taking the human experience in the next 20 to 30 years. What a day in the life might be like, what kind of changes we might be looking at. People know that their smartphones are beeping them more often and that you know their recommendations for products are better, but that's low-level stuff. When we think farther ahead, what are some of the future considerations that more people should be thinking about? So it's great to be here. Nice to see you again, Dan. Great question. Not surprised you asked it. <laughs> you know me. You know me. So, of course, there are so many unknown unknowns. Yes, yes, sir. And I'm certainly. going to be speculative. But if I had to guess, first of all, you could probably already tell that people will continue to work remotely. And if you can envision the future 20 to 30 years from now, you can also envision very high-tech virtual reality allowing you to have pretty seamless VR meetings. So some of your listeners may be familiar with Second Life, hardly seamless, but it's a venue where you can have conferences and whatnot. Well, you know, one problem with these kinds of things is the technology is not all that sophisticated yet. But another one is that you miss at conferences, for example, opportunities to actually hang out and have dinner with your friends, get drunk, whatever. Yeah, well, I think yeah. it will be more seamless. And I think social life will even be enabled so that you can say, have dinner with your family in Florence while, or they'll be, they could be in Florence while you're in California, you know, sort of the future that Kurzweil envisioned in part. Okay. So that's only one thing though. The other thing is I, I think we're getting close to general intelligence right now, not full-fledged human level AGI, but general intelligence that's more and more domain general that can move from one topic to the next and integrate material across topic divides. And here I'm thinking about GPT-3. Yeah. So I'm envisioning in 30 years, or actually I would even say 20 years, we will have very seamless conversations with AGIs. AGIs will in fact look to many people as if they're quite human. So I'm I'm thinking here the Alexas and series of the future and I can imagine that some people <laughs> in an almost her like fashion will be involved with their digital assistants and as I said in the New York Times good luck with that one people because I doubt very seriously that the series in Alexas in 20 to 30 years, we'll have conscious experience. That's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. will be far, far easier to get something that talks in a human-like way than something that actually has the felt quality of experience. It's yeah. a conscious being. And yeah, here by yeah. consciousness, I mean, you know, it feels like something from the inside to be it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So all that stuff, it doesn't scare me because my hope is that There'll be, quote, experts who will explain these issues to the public. Hopefully, philosophers will step up to the plate and say, hey, you know, we need to appreciate you people who want to marry Alexa, that yeah. 
that Alexa isn't really a sentient being. And here's what consciousness is. And, you know, I hope that the young philosophers studying consciousness will, in fact, step up to the plate, get out of the ivory tower. But now I'm not terribly worried about any of this. Okay. Here's okay. It dismal, dystopian. Let's, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Let's go there. Okay, so I said that people would be working remotely, but that was a gross oversimplification because I'm not so sure people will be working. I mean, if we have something that is human level in its capacities, and it may not be the very same system in all cases, we may have a system that can outmode medical attorneys. We might have a different type of system which can outmode professors. So I'm not saying there'll be a singular AGI yeah, that yeah, does yeah, it all. I'm yeah. not even saying there'll be anything like Nick Bostrom's superintelligence, yeah, but yeah. there will be domain general expert systems capable of outmoding people in a variety of areas. And I really don't know what the future of work will be like in 30 years because I don't know how different countries will react to that predicament. I mean, there are already, as you know, a lot of projections about future technological unemployment. Now, some people, they say, yes, there will be certain sectors which are no longer, you know, sectors populated by humans, instead AIs, but there'll be new things that open up, just as in the past. And yeah. I'm not so sure. I'm actually more skeptical. And I think what we need to do now is start having conversations about the future of work and what we want. So I think people like Andrew Yang are doing very important work in discussing the future of work and what we value. So I will say, unless we deal with this soon, we could see in 20 to 30 years widespread technological unemployment and relatedly we could see a good deal of civil unrest. I mean, if we think the political climate was altered by Rust Belt voters in the past, we had better think hard about the future of employment. Number one, I mean, I'm, I'm with you on the, the work uh, considerations. We'll poke into this first and we'll talk about the, the remote and the VR and the her scenario. For those of you who are listening to this episode and you're not aware, there's a movie called Her, H-E-R, it's about uh, a man who sort of falls in love with a programmatically generated kind of AI voice on a cell phone. It's, it's a, a long story, but uh, you can check it out for yourself. Anyway, future work. Five or six years ago now, we, we did a poll with something like 33 AI researchers and PhDs, uh, Yashua Bengios of the world, as well as the Roman Yampolskis and people that you're aware of. And their biggest 20-year risk was economic and unemployment stuff. So that was kind of between the 2015, 2035 range that they really are most concerned about that. And you're echoing a bit of that. You know, Harari, who I have yet to read any of his books, I feel a little bit guilty about that, but I, I just haven't, you know, talks about, I think the term sounds a little bit more gruff than it's intended, but sort of almost like an, an unemployable sort of class as more and more machines take up so many things, there will only be so many jobs and they'll be of a certain level of complexity and maybe cross-domain expertise and uh, pockets where humans can, can still really add economic value. Is this part of the concern for you when it comes to driving unemployment or, or what's your flavor of why this could be a civil unrest issue? I think I agree with him. You know, it depends on the country. So I can imagine more forward thinking democracies that have more social programs dealing with these issues in a very effective way. 
So right now, for example, there's a huge contrast in the way employers treat employees, even in, you know, look at the contrast between the United States and Germany. Germans have about six weeks of paid vacation a year. Okay. Now, so one model for moving into the future would be to shorten the work week, shorten the work day, give people more vacation, and sort of have a sort of soft move toward redefining our lives, basically. But, I mean, there obviously has to be a social infrastructure. There has to to be... Um, transfer payments, and there have to be conversations about these issues, right? I mean, a big country like the United States, it's hard to get even health care reform off the ground in yeah, any kind of yeah, effective yeah, yeah. way. It doesn't help the level of misinformation out there in the news these days. So I think the big hurdle is actually with the public education and then in the U.S., Special interest money is going to be a huge problem getting anything done with Congress. So one thing I've noticed in my time working with Congress is that these are well-intentioned people. They're smart people. They're not all jerks the way the public believes. But the problem is they have constituencies that they need to please. And worse, a thousand times worse, they have to get donors. And they don't want to piss off the big tech companies. Okay? Um, I mean, look what just happened to Trump. He got booted off his big PR platform. I mean, we might say that God, right? Shut him up. I I understand that sentiment, but the other way of looking at it is look how powerful big tech already is. Just just erase the guy. Just erased him. I mean, he's he's off the radar now, right? I mean, he's he's gone. Right. So big tech not only has all these special interest money, but they have the ability to ruin someone's political career. So my projection, actually, to go back to projections, is that big tech could be more powerful than a government. Oh, easily. 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 Yeah, yes. I've already, so I've already it heard It probably uh, is yeah. already. Yeah, but, at, the, I mean, at, at the WEF, I've already heard rustlings in the breeze from people who've rubbed elbows with the Google founders in terms of like the kinds of discourse that goes on. I mean, they're, they're already well aware that they're significantly more important than, I don't know, maybe all of Eastern Europe or something like that. I mean, I, I think, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's it's very sobering. And the thing that bothers me the most is that, and this isn't really, it's, it's not personal, if you will. You know, I've myself tinkered with AI patents. I've had business interests in AI in the past, you know, just a bit, not much. But I can understand how one's personal drive to get their product out takes over. Okay. I mean, it's just human nature to want to succeed. And we all live, you know, as embodied beings with egos. And so putting power in the hands of tech companies that basically engage in, you know, surveillance capitalism, right? It's a digital economy. They are invested in getting our data and they're invested in weak regulations, not, I mean, they have different motives. Yeah. Um, so I think we have to think, follow the money, as we always have to think when it comes to businesses yeah. and politicians. Yes. So, you know, the future <laughs> worries me greatly when it comes to how we will react to technological unemployment, because I think it is coming. And I think we have 
a wonderful opportunity here for humankind, an opportunity for people to spend more time with their families, to enjoy their hobbies, to basically be architects of how they want to spend their days yeah. and not be basically, you know, slaves to the office. We can do this right if we have conversations that are inclusive, that don't become polarized, right versus left. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm sick so of that. We need to steer too. clear of that and really come together. And ironically, it may be that these issues morph into humans versus machines, and we are finally brought together by that. That could be interesting. There might be a bit of that. I, I'm going to chip one thing your way and kind of get your feel here. So you're involved with Congress and, and getting, you know, increasingly kind of politically, you know, invested as as on some level, not with Congress, but with the OECD and whatnot I have since our last conversation, things that I think about. Uh, so when it comes to this opportunity, I think you're right. I think that, hey, couldn't this be a beautiful thing where more human flourishing could be the result? And, and I think it feels as though there's a lot of opportunity for that. On the one hand, I'm not all that optimistic in cold frankness that most people, if left to their own devices, would in some, you know, philosophical sense, build out sort of a panoply of fulfillment around them. I, I think that, that actually that, that met the metacognition involved in sort of like architecting fulfillment and meaning in life is, is sort of a, a, a really narrow band of living hominids that actually would, would do that. And so that, that's one supposition. Second thing, though, much more important is in the Western world, our main priority, which is a beautiful priority, will be the flourishing and happiness of you know people and the and hopefully the proliferation of of some of the values we really hold dear in terms of freedom of speech and and the other thing you know choice choice and and you know happiness and whatnot well i believe that it is possible that a nation let's say china kind of the only other player in the game as far as i'm concerned at least at present might take a slightly different approach and might be more interested in how this technology facilitation so instead of becoming lotus eaters which is i think what a lot of the Western world might decide to do is just sort of eat of the lotus, right? Oh, you don't work anymore. Ooh. And, and the, the China might, might become world eaters and they might enable uh, technology explicitly for the expansion and proliferation of their aims. And I think we might think that happiness and freedom exist in the, the air that we breathe, but actually it's only because we breathe the air under a set of kind of periclean, uh, you know, democratic values that we, we think like exist in the ether, but they don't. They don't. They're there only because of the strength and relative technological predominance of the culture we now live in that we fought to build and have been lucky enough, maybe some of us to, to be born. So I, I worry, actually, that the Western world will focus on eating lotus and then we'll lose the game and that, that none of us will be able to say Uyghurs uh, when we watch NBA in virtual reality. Do you share any of that at all? Because I, I consider this often. I do. I, sh I believe everything you say. I would also add that the perception we have of the game when it comes to AI in China or the possible uses of emerging technologies more generally in the hands of authoritarian dictatorships kind of pushes the envelope in our direction to develop certain technologies in certain ways to yeah. keep up, if yeah. you will. Yeah. You can yeah. even, you know, put it in terms of the survival of democracy itself. Um, I mean, in particular, it's not just about technology. It's not just about our lives, the way, nope. you know, will we have the best smartphones, it's deeper than that. It's about the future of war. It's about autonomous weapons that are fueled by artificial intelligence. It's about things like dead hands. If you are Cold War buff, you might remember the notorious dead hand. Um, you know, the idea that when in the situation of mutual assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union, 
there would be a sort of dead hand that would be an automated response, an automated nuclear response in event that the Russians couldn't react themselves because they had been destroyed. Now, you might think, well, why have a dead hand? Well, the idea was supposed to be that it would serve as a deterrent because they had been nuked. They may not be able to respond, but the idea is to prevent. Okay, well, now think about the arena of warfare. We have now, you know, AI-based robotics. We have artificial intelligence systems detecting threats in a quicker fashion than a human could. We have sophisticated drone technology. Um, I'm sure your listeners have seen the Slaughterbots yeah, video. Yeah, great video. Oh, great God. video. Worth Googling. A lot of fun. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think that's fun to watch during it the is, pandemic. Yeah, it's a blast. I'm going to watch it tonight. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So anyway, not to add more dystopic more fear, feels here. Yeah, already yeah, fearful yeah, yeah. lives, but okay, let's go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, so... These are worries that are in here now with the robotization of warfare. Do we want AGIs that are able to respond to nuclear attacks or other kinds of attacks in a way that is quicker than humans? I mean, in some cases, the human mind just can't synthesize all of the information coming in to even respond to an attack. So, you know, keeping up with China or strategic supremacy in the domain of AI isn't just about having the best TVs. It's about our own survival, right? In the future, then, to go back, you want forecasting. I mean, I'm virtually certain that we'll have a sort of AI cold war with adversarial countries. And I think that AI, there could be golden opportunities here to avoid deaths of soldiers. Right. If you can send a drone to do it, you're not sending a soldier to do it. But this could also become a very difficult situation akin to the Cold War, sadly, in which we had mutual assured destruction and lots of money going in to stockpiling of arsenals. And this time the arsenals are AGIs and drones. And, you know, but anyway, there's already an arsenal of drones. Very, very sophisticated. Certainly. Okay. Yeah, to connect that with the employment issue and to <laughs> more concrete about the future again, I'd also like to suggest that AI will go inside the head. So I'm right there with you. Let's let's roll into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that's kind of the topic of my recent book, Artificial You AI and the Future of the Mind. So how are you gonna deal with AI that outsmarts you? How are you gonna deal with being jobless? Well, the same answer may solve both problems. Put AI in the head. Yeah. Make humans smarter so they can keep up with the machines. This is something that Elon Musk has been saying for years now. I mean, he created a company, Neuralink, designed to put chips in the head. He's not the only one. These kinds of projects have been going on for years in the context of the therapeutic use. Yeah, Brain Gates and these other folks at Pittsburgh and whatnot for well over a decade. Yeah, maybe even two decades. Yeah. You know, Importantly, uh, Ted Berger's pretty far along with the artificial hippocampus. It's in yep. phase two clinical trials in humans, which could really, really, really help yeah. people yeah. with memory disorders. I mean, you know, and DARPA too, they've been working on closed loop neural implants for all kinds of mental health reasons, um, yeah. you know, for post traumatic stress disorder. But of course, look, 
the future of warfare, I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, I know the idea of autonomous weapons scares the shit out of us, right? But how do you keep a human in the loop in a context in which no normal perceptual capacity can even detect the data coming in? Well, the answer there, ironically, may be AI itself. That is to say, putting AI in the head. Yeah, yeah. You see, keep humans in the loop, augmented humans. That's where the future is headed. I don't know how widespread brain augmentation will be in 30 years, but I think there will be augmented soldiers whose job it is to keep up with artificial intelligence. Yeah, and I think if we're not careful, there will be... uh... A lot more of them in you know in China than here uh, because there's a, a little bit little little bit lower on the barriers there a little bit lower on the a little a little, a little lower you know you 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 could you could I don't know geez you get a twenty thousand Uyghurs to experiment on do whatever you damn well want right I mean it's a pretty it's a pretty nice environment if you want to build cyborgs so yeah it's it's uh, nobody talks it's about absolutely it absolutely horrific and it pushes the envelope yeah what it does is it it encourages democracies not to engage in involuntary brain enhancement, but to have that same capability for soldiers. Arms race, arms race. Right, you know, it's an arms race. Yep. And if you're using unethical methods to get your research done, you don't have the, you may not encounter the same bottlenecks it, in your oh, research You certainly wouldn't. And, you certainly won't. Yeah, no problem. Um, it, it's a concern. You Nobody know? talks about it, and it literally shocks me to my core. Mm-hmm. It shocks me to my very core. Like, of course, when you, you know, give a talk at the UN or something, you can't really bring these things up. But man, it's a real shame you can't. Because yeah, I, I think that the, the arms race that you're talking about, you know, the survival of democracy, not just better televisions or phones. Man, you know, you're talking about the future of war. By golly, you know, we might be seen as behind the eight ball in a lot of very important uh, ways of making progress there. AI in the head, as you're framing it, um, again, there might be progress that's a little quicker, a little swifter if, if we can kind of skirt around some of the ethical stuff and and move uh, move faster. And that, that takes us to, there's no simple answers here, but from your position, getting now much more involved in policy um, over the last number of years, do you have any thoughts around what it's going to look like for the West to sort of be able to maintain some of the strength of their values, but without necessarily falling astronomically behind in some of the the areas that they're going to have to keep up with. You know, how do we square the circle? Well, we don't compromise human rights. We don't let the phenomenon of pushing the envelope ruin our values. We invest heavily in artificial intelligence. I think that's happening. And the the other variable and we we invest heavily in brain science as well. Work at the interface of neuroscience and AI to understand what AI can and cannot achieve when it comes to human brain augmentation. That's one of the things actually my new center is involved in, which I've been discussing in places like the New York Times and the Financial Times. So I think there are potential ceilings on brain augmentation that we need to pay attention to. And we need to have a deeper understanding. I think the conceptual understanding of what we can achieve with respect to these technologies is impoverished right now. And so that could be a strategic advantage to actually develop a more sophisticated understanding. But also, I think the other variable here that we need to bear in mind is we've been framing it in our conversation over the last, like, five minutes as sort of 
the U.S. versus an authoritarian dictatorship like China. And the variable here that we're not considering is that by the time all this plays out, the tech companies are going to be quite possibly the biggest actor, the most powerful actor. So that has to be considered. And the other thing that has to be considered is we don't want to frame it as humans versus AGI. We want to frame the issue if we're talking 30 years down the road or 40 years down the road, potentially in highly enhanced humans versus AGI. And so, you know, we haven't talked about the control problem, but, you know, one of the problems I see right now with the way we think about the future is we're worried about controlling AI because AI is going to outthink us. But what we really need to understand is that we may have to control highly augmented humans because they're cyborgs and the same issues that we worry about playing out with respect to super intelligent AI play out with respect to super intelligent humans. And see, that's another thing that people just aren't considering. It's like we're framing the issues in terms of certain biases. We're thinking unenhanced humans and we're thinking state actors. Yep. Yeah. yeah, See, but it's not going to be state actors. It's going to be corporate and state actors. And it's not going to be unenhanced humans versus AIs. It's going to be, in that context, a threefold dialectic, if you will, between the unenhanced humans, the highly enhanced humans, and the AI. Yeah. And some people. I suppose uh, that's not a dialectic. Yeah, well, whatever. It's, it's some kind of a trifecta of sorts. We want to use fancy. Uh, yeah, well, let's get a fancy word in here. Somebody pull the fancy word box out. Trifectic a word? <laughs> Could be. It is now. Why um, not? So Why not? Uh, I'm totally with you. My, my supposition is that if, let's say, in the next two years, uh, it seems pretty evident that Google's about to birth the deity, if we will you know, in terms of AGI. I'm not suspecting that, by the way. I'm just throwing it out there. I think that the tanks roll up very shortly thereafter and that that technology is commandeered by the the government. Now, if the transition happens more slowly and these tech firms start to build, you know, so many different, like, I don't know, offshore bases or something, buying islands and shit like that, I I think as soon as, as, as soon as they start acquiring islands, they'll be aware that it's time to play some hopscotch. But if it happens at any point in the next five years... I think the planes go overhead, the tanks roll up on the ground, and I think, you know, their known data centers, and they, most of them got to be known, are just immediately commandeered. Do you suspect that, how, how does an Amazon fight with the DOD if any of this stuff happens in the proximal term? I, I would say they, they got to start arming up. They got to start finding ways to employ people in, in ways that are totally untrackable. They got to start living in countries that don't exist, like like having a, a headquarters like floating in the ocean or something. And by the time we start seeing that happen, we're going to know the ball game. We're going to know they're going to try to to like start competing with countries and stuff. I believe Google's more important than most countries right now in terms of influence. However, how do they actually get to the point of competing, like you mentioned here? I, I'm not sure if I agree with that whole line of thinking. Really? Uh, yeah, and you know, I think our thinking about super intelligence and and the control problem. It's been conditioned by Bostrom's book and actually the papers, the papers that the book is founded on by not just Bostrom, but actually importantly by other people as well. But here's my thinking. The benchmark that we need to be worrying about is not 
greater than human intelligence in every respect, which is the, you know, the definition of superintelligence. It's instead a savant system. And I think savant systems will exist far sooner and there'll be a range of them. So, you know, it's important strategically for the military to have systems that think in certain ways, but they don't have to be super intelligent. They don't have to be smarter than us in every respect. A savant system is a system that is vastly smarter than us in certain ways, but still dumb in others. Yeah. Like idiots of idiot savants. I yeah, mean, not to call yeah. it. I don't like the expression idiot. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, right. But yeah, you get it. But anyway, whoever has a range of systems that excel, I mean, yeah. one could be excellent in strategic reasoning. And remember, AIs will just be better at computation. They'll be better at facial recognition. I mean, anything that is sort of pattern recognition, you know, based. And of course, a lot, I think a lot of cognition is pattern recognition based, you know, so I, I think the savant systems are the marker here. And no, I don't think that as soon as somebody creates a powerful savant system at, say, Amazon, which they already have these, I mean, you know, that the military is going to pull up and take it away. There's a reason why AI advisors who are big tech gurus are in Washington all the time. They're working together, right? I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily Amazon versus Congress or, you know. Yeah, yeah. you're saying it's big tech almost like a block of uh, sorts. You know, this is all part of the deep state. <laughs> you know? I mean, come on. I, that's kind of my take. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm not so worried about that. I think, um, you know, it's really who are the tech companies going to decide to work with as we move into the future. Yeah. And that's why keeping them happy is important. But see, that the sad thing is for the human human future, for the future of flourishing in the age of AI, you know, we need to think about how we're going to navigate widespread technological unemployment. And that may involve taxing and regulating the tech yes, company. Yes, for so sure. That's, I mean, see, there's a painful trade-off here in the eyes of hmm. future leadership. And that's why we need to, we need to begin now to lay the groundwork for tech regulation and think about how the issues that we lay down today will look in 30 years. So if we lay down privacy regulations, we better be thinking about thought data privacy while we do it. Because we are moving already in the direction of AI actually being able to detect our thoughts. I can tell you about technology and beta testing right now that does it. So, you know, these are things we need to be mindful of. Because if if you don't like surveillance capitalism now, you're really going to hate it Yeah, when it has control of your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is a really important point to sort of bring to a head here as we wrap is because, again, I think it's very easy for folks to simply think about today's issues. And, and uh, I feel awful lonely when I write about brain-computer interface and how important it is. Uh, in terms of the grand trajectory, but I'm glad to hear you beating that drum and and kind of bringing to bear the importance of considering where that's going to take us. Where, where are we going to steer it? What should be permitted? Um, you know, how does it affect privacy, uh, security, health, etc.? And yeah, like you said, if if we just stumble forward, we might end up in 
you know, the worst of all worlds with brain reading, et cetera, if we're not uh, conscious enough about this. And it sounds like that's kind of your message. Yeah, the future of human flourishing shouldn't be decided in boardrooms at Google and Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Nor should it be decided by government officials <laughs> yeah. who are worried about special interest money. Should be something the media, the public, we all talk about and we all understand. So that's why it's important that we have a sophisticated understanding of where it's all headed and dialogue now on the future of work and the future of the mind. Yeah. It also shouldn't yeah. be piped into us uh, uh, in some Maoist optimized propagandic format from a foreign nation either. Right. So we've got to, got to make sure tech doesn't control it. Got to make sure uh, our, our government doesn't control it. Got to make sure somebody else doesn't win the whole world and sort of control it. So um, there's, there's a lot of factors up in the air, but uh, to your point, and I think for the listeners, as we close here, uh, there are issues well beyond our current conception of security that we've got to think about moving forward. And Susan, I am just uh, happy as a clam that I got to bring you on to talk about some of these big deal issues. And I look forward to finding another great excuse to chat. Thank you so much for joining us in the series. Thanks for having me. And boy, I can't wait to listen to the other ones in the series. It's this has be been a really a unique conversation. Yep. So that's it for our second AI Futures series. It's crazy to think that the second one is now all the way done. Our first AI Futures series occurred last year in 2020. It was focused on AI governance. Stuart Russell was our kickoff interview for that series. And this year, it has been the future of the human experience with Stephen Wolfram starting us off and now uh, Susan Schneider being our cap episode for our eight of eight episodes. I hope you've been able to get something out of these episodes and that they've sparked some ideas for you about where we're taking this technology and where ultimately it's going to bring us in the long-term future. I think the consequences of these technologies decades into the future should be talked about more frequently. I'm grateful to our guests to be able to bring so much value to these important topics. So if you've enjoyed this special AI Futures series, and I hope you have if you're listening to our final episode here, I hope you'll consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or what is now called Apple Podcast. We do have a number of listeners who have an interest in the more deep future topics, and so we're grateful for some of the suggestions for topics from some of our listeners around the world. People are hitting me on LinkedIn with various and sundry topics. We had an episode some two and a half years ago about the farther AI future, and I got so many direct LinkedIn messages that I felt like we need to start a annual series about this. So it's really partially your ideas, our listeners, that we're doing this series in the first place. If you've benefited from this, you've valued these episodes, you want to see us do more of them, again, consider supporting the show by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can simply search for the AI and Business Podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review letting us know about any particular episodes that you've liked the most or any specific topics you hope to see us cover more into the future. It is your feedback that builds this show and helps us mold our editorial content and create something that's valuable for you. So do consider that. And otherwise, be sure to keep it locked here for the coming Tuesday when we get back to our normal cadence of AI use cases and AI ROI here on the AI and Business Podcast.